Well, it's so good to see every one of you on this Palm Sunday. Um, this is the day where Jesus walks into Jerusalem, sitting on a donkey, and the crowd is waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. And basic, basically, Hosanna can be interpreted, uh, interpreted as save us. So they're shouting, save us, save us, because they're under the oppression of the Roman government. So as we go through our sermon today, this is the context in which um, we are celebrating today. And it's the week before the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Um, so with that, let us pray. Father, we are grateful we can remember what Christ did for us, all of humanity and all of creation, through his death upon the cross. Through Christ, we can come to know God because what was previously beyond our horizon of understanding, you, O oh gracious God, entered our horizon in the form of flesh through Jesus Christ in order that we may understand you better. As we reflect on Christ, help us to understand the depth and the breadth and the extent of your love and grace you have for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, PowerPoint isn't working, but I had something set up and I was thinking about, like, what am I going to call this sermon? What would be the title? And I was thinking, um, Control freak? No, Jesus isn't a freak. Um, so I, I had to scratch that one. And then I thought, oh, okay, what about... And after pondering upon it for a while, I was like, oh, maybe Jesus... Well, Jesus saves? Yeah, yeah, Jesus saves. Oh, Jesus control S. And I was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. So I went home and I looked it up on the internet. And then I was like, oh, what a great idea. And then as I was doing an image search, I was like, oh, there's t-shirts and everything. So I'm like, oh, I'm not as brilliant as I thought I was because people already came up with the idea. So. But that's the title of our sermon today, is that Jesus control S. Now, I took a class called the Gospels. I figured that it would be a pretty easy class since before going to school, I read the Gospels quite often. Well, on the second day, our professor, Mark Madsen, asked a question that had many of us stumped. He asked the class, so class, um, why are there four Gospels? Why are there four Gospel stories of Jesus? Wouldn't it be easier to understand who Jesus is if, if there was just one Gospel? Why didn't God just decide to make one story, make it all nice and neat, put everything in proper order that leaves no room for confusion about this Jesus? And then he sent us home. He let us struggle and wrestle with this question for a while. Then he gave us this explanation. He says, you see, when one tells a story, you either include or you withhold information according to the audience you're talking to so that you can make a good point. 
Richard Burridge writes a great book about all this called Four Gospels, One Jesus. You see, Mark is writing to an audience of Christians who are wrestling with their faith in Christ. Matthew, on the other hand, is writing to an audience who are primarily Jewish. And then Luke, is, his audience is primarily those who are non-Jewish. Now, the Gospel of John explains that this Jesus has and always will be king. The author of John tells the story in such a way to communicate to us that when we look at Jesus, we see God. So the Gospel of John is very unique. Only in this Gospel does Jesus turn water into wine. Only in this gospel does he befriend a Samaritan woman at the well. And only in this gospel does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Now the author does not start off with Jesus' birth, unlike the other two gospels. He goes back even further. He takes us all the way back to Genesis with the Word, Jesus being there with God and participating in creation. That's where his gospel starts. This Jesus who was there at the time of creation comes from creation, from that time, into the world to redeem all of creation. Jesus is in control everything. Now we're going to fast forward to the moment before Jesus' death. If you have your Bible, we're going to start off with John 18. It reads as this, after Jesus had spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons and rocks and locks. It didn't say that part, but I had it. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked him, Who are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Jesus is in control. So the soldiers, their officers, and the Jewish people arrested Jesus and bound him. And I skipped from verse 9 to verse 12 just to make See, in John's gospel, 
Jesus does not agonize in prayer when he goes to the garden to pray, let this cup pass from me. Jesus goes to the garden to get arrested. Jesus is in control. When the soldiers go and arrest Jesus, they ask Jesus to identify himself. Jesus replies, I am. Boom! The soldiers fall to the ground at the mention of his divine name as it refers back to the Old Testament. I am that I am. I am the I am. Jesus is in control. In fact, Jesus has so much control. The soldiers do something unique to only John's gospel. They bind him up in order to try and control him. But it's Jesus who allows this to happen. Jesus is in control. We skip ahead now to the crucifixion in John 19, verse 17 through 30. And it reads, So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what was called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and, with, and him with two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But instead, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Jesus is in control. He is the king of the Jews. After going on to verse 28, it reads, After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished. He said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of wine on the branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received it, received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus is in control. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus is in control. He carries his own cross by himself. There's no mention of Simon of Cyrene, and it does not stress his suffering because Jesus is in control. See, Jesus foretold the type of death he would suffer upon the cross. Jesus was about to exhibit the greatest sign and miracle with his death in order to redeem and reconcile all of creation back with God. It is Jesus who gives his life 
as a sacrifice, a Passover lamb. And only in John's gospel is Jesus proclaimed as the lamb of God. The death of Christ was not just about taking our sins upon himself. Jesus took upon himself not just the sin of the sinner, but he took upon the destiny of the sinner. Ray Anderson, a systematic theologian, says that the blood has no power to make atonement. See, in the Old Testament, it was not enough that some blood was drawn from an animal and put on the altar. It was necessary that death had to occur for atonement to be made. When the blood has been shed, death occurred, and so it's the death that constitutes atonement. The blood on the altar is just a sign that the death of an animal has taken place. And this is not so that the blood of an animal or of people satisfies a bloodthirsty God because God is not bloodthirsty. Here's the amazing thing. God says, if you approach me as one who has died, I will give you life. That is why the altar is not just a symbol of death but a symbol of promise, a symbol of prom- the promise of life. The power, however, comes not just in the death, but in the resurrection. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, the blood accomplishes nothing. Therefore, we can now talk of Jesus' blood washing away our sins because ourselves have been reconciled through God through the life and the resurrected Christ who, who is in each and every one of you. That's the great sign. The sign of Jesus being lifted up on the cross in his death and in his resurrection. See, the story of Jesus' Jesus's arrest, trial, and crucifixion of, is a sign and a miracle of a grand scale. Hard to imagine. Every act and deed that Jesus did leads to this final sign. A theologian named George Beasley Murray describes Jesus' death as this. Jesus' death is the final and all-inclusive sign. It transcends all other. The earlier sacrifices from the time of creation to the time before Jesus had only temporary effects. And that within a limited area, the wine that Jesus so lavishly provided at the feast finally ran out. The multitude that ate the loaves in the wilderness, they grew hungry again. And Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, 
but to die once more. When, however, the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross, all the world was affected and history was changed forever. Jesus was in control. The best way the Gospel of John describes Jesus, the Son of God, is best understood as a journey. Jesus steps out from his pre-existent state in heaven, lives among ordinary women and men, and then returns back to heaven. A Jesus who descends from glory must again ascend to glory. On the, on the surface, Jesus' death appears to be a grisly execution. However, it's actually a glorious exaltation of the Son returning to the Father. At this point, you may be thinking to yourself, I get it. Jesus is in control. But why does it matter? Of course he's in control. Jesus is God. He should be in control. Well, Jesus is in control of his own death as he was lifted up. A death that reconciled all humanity, creation, and the world back to a loving God. This death, this painful journey, is the ultimate expression of love. He chose to enter into our world, to go through the suffering of pain, to experience rejection, to feel the sting of death in order that we might be made right with God. Jesus offered himself for us. Jesus Christ, the gift of God. As the author of John puts it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal On Palm Sunday, Jesus came rolling in on a donkey and the crowd shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. You may be going through some things and you're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. You might be stressed or depressed or have some kind of illness that nobody might understand that you're going through and they don't know the pain and the suffering that you're going through. And you're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. But we can have hope through the death of Christ. That through his death, we can look into those dark places in our lives. And and hope that God is in control and that he sees us. And that from those situations, he will spring forth life. Before I pray... I want you to take a minute or two to reflect. 
Where are areas in your life where you're shouting, Hosanna, 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 save us, help us, rescue us? And as you do so, ask God to take control and bring life into those situations. Let's pray.